are listening to the podcast for Nerdy Christians, a show for progressive followers of Jesus who also happen to love Hogwarts, hobbits, and elaborate plans by the baddies that don't make any sense and could easily go wrong. This is season three and three quarters, episode one, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. I'm Carrie Combs, and I'm very happy to be sitting across the internet from Adam Thomas. Hey, Adam. Hey, Carrie. It, we're sitting across the internet from each other as we always do. It is the beginning of March 2021 as we record this. And I hope at some point in the next couple of months that you and I might be able to sit across from each other in the real world. What do you think? I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Like we not be on a computer? Right. You will be three-dimensional. No, you won't need your microphone. You will be three-dimensional. You will you will have you will have depth. What? Well, you do have depth because uh, I, I mean I talk to you a lot, but I meant you know on the screen. Physical depth. Physical depth. <laughs> You'd be able to potentially see the back of my head. Yeah. That's very scary because uh you know I haven't gotten a good haircut in a long time. <laughs> but no one sees that. Everyone just sees the front these days. That's right. Uh, so this is season three and three quarters. Yeah, see that nice title. See what we, see what we did there because it's about Harry Potter. It's a whole mm-hmm. you know thing. Um, why why are we doing this mini season of three episodes? The oh, reason boy. is that Carrie and I, when we began the podcast for Nerdy Christians, committed to talk about all seven Harry Potter books. Well, we didn't actually say that, but. We established plan. We established yeah. a pattern and a set yeah. of expectations. However, after doing season three with the Prisoner of Azkaban, we we realized that walking through like pretty much every chapter of every book mm-hmm. doesn't necessarily provide. Uh, a fodder for conversations that are theological or spiritual or mm-hmm. you know interesting. Uh, so, <laughs> to anyone besides us, maybe. Yeah. So, <laughs> or even we, to us. So we decided to do what sitcoms do every once in a while, where they skip forward in time a couple of years, age up the characters, and um, when we begin season four, we are going to go slowly through Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, the last Harry Potter book. Yeah. And so we decided to have season three and three quarters, which is going to be three episodes long. And we are going to talk about each of Harry Potter's four, five, and six in those three episodes, just so that we can go from three to seven and then get into seven and and be able to talk about it a little bit more in depth. How does that sound, Carrie? Sounds wonderful. And there is a lot of content in here. Actually, that's part of the problem. They're very long books and there's a lot going on. But as Adam pointed out in one of our conversations ahead of time, Goblet of Fire is kind of like three really elaborate, we call them set pieces. Yeah, it's actually five. It's actually five five, because you have the, the, the Quidditch World Cup and the Yule Ball. Well, that's right. So really and then the big, three tasks. Like, big, yeah. big scenes. And then I guess if you count the duel with Voldemort. Anyway, there's there's a lot in there. And to go through it, it's the thoroughness to which we are accustomed isn't really what we're, we're looking to do. I'm also going to admit, I wasn't sure we would ever get to four seasons. I was on this. It was a try on. It was an experiment. And we've loved, I've loved doing the podcast, so I'm happy to keep going. And it will be exciting to uh, keep our momentum and move forward with season four and with the last, the, the final book of the Harry Potter series. I'm looking forward to talking Goblet of Fire today. And would you like to lead us in with our scripture quote? Sure. Carrie won't let me do the nerd quote because I end up doing Dumbledore as Obi-Wan Kenobi by it's accident. A very good impression. And I think uh, <laughs> I would love that 
that casting, but it's not possible. Uh, our scripture quotation today comes from Paul's letter to the Galatians at chapter five. By contrast, the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the spirit, let us also be guided by the spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. And our quotation from Nerd Canon is in the final chapter of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire called The Beginning from Dumbledore. He says, Remember, if the time should come when you have to make a choice between what is right and what is easy, remember what happened to a boy who was good and kind and brave because he strayed across the path of Lord Voldemort. Remember Cedric Diggory. If there's anything we can take from Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire, I think this has got to be it. As far as how can we apply this book to our lives, mm -hmm. choosing between what is right and what is easy. And, and Dumbledore is talking to the whole assembled student body at that point. Student bodies, all three oh, all, schools all three are schools. all there. Yeah, right. Um, before we get into that, though, why don't we just do a very quick rundown of the plot of Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Um, okay. As, as we mentioned before, we have, uh, and this is this is the downfall of the movie Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. The book is so long that basically the movie just goes from set piece to set piece with no interstitial material whatsoever. It's just bam, 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 bam. Like they hard cut between the tasks pretty much in, pretty, yeah. the, in the movie. Uh, so Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire begins with Harry pining for his friends. Uh, he, well, it begins with Voldemort, you know, blah, blah baby Voldemort basically but Harry is pining for his friends he ends up with the Weasleys they go to the Quidditch World Cup uh, Bulgaria versus Ireland and it's all exciting and great and, and uh, you know Ireland wins but Crumb gets the this, this snitch and all that stuff but what? then the Death Eaters come and in the night of the Quidditch World Cup and the dark mark is shot into the sky oh, they end up at school <laughs> do my, my own sound effects here this is great. they get back to school and there's no Quidditch what? No Quidditch. Oh, no, no Quidditch. <laughs> what a shame. But there's something even better than Quidditch. It's the Triwizard Tournament. Uh, and Beaubaton and Durmstrang come. They announce the Triwizard Tournament, uh, which is so dangerous that it hasn't been done in a really long time. But for some reason, we're doing it now because we this think we have- a great idea with evil think, on the rise. I think we have safety done. Great. All right. Um, and and uh, But there's an age limit now. That's what they. Mm. That's how they decide that this is Much all going to be safer. safe. A champion from each school. We have Fleur Delacour from Beaubaton. We have Victor Crumb from Durmstrang. We have Surprise. Cedric Diggory, uh, Edward Cullen himself. No, no, I can't I reject do that. that casting right. choice. <laughs> but he is a Hufflepuff, and for once, Hufflepuff House gets all the glory. Except, except that then, of course, Harry dun, Potter dun, dun. is also has his name drawn from the Goblet of Fire, which makes pretty much everybody mad at him, except I think Hermione. And even Dumbledore um, attacks. Oh, wait, that's the movie. That's in, in the, the movie. book. Oh, gosh, he says gently, nope. yeah. Harry, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? And Harry says, no. And that's the end of it. 
Yeah, Dumbledore believes Harry Potter. Anyway, so the whole school is turned against <laughs> Harry Potter. He starts the tasks. Ron specifically is really mad at him. They have the first task. It is uh, to, to steal the golden egg from the dragons. Harry gets the hardest dragon. Uh, of it all, course. It all goes well. He flies, and he's a great flyer, of course. And at the end of that, Ron basically is like, I reckon that maybe you didn't put your name in the Goblet of Fire because that was really dangerous, and I don't think you're that you know, much of a glory hog. Uh, so they're, they're okay. Again. Finally caught Yay. on. Have you? Oh gosh. They're so snippy <laughs> in this book. Yeah, they're, very... they're so snippy. Uh, they have the golden egg and the egg is their clue to the next task, but wait in between. We have the Yule ball, this oh. scary, scary prom at the end. At, <laughs> yeah. You know, Christmas. Harry basically. would rather go up against another Hungarian horntail than have to find a date, which is an excellent song by Harry and the Potters. If you're not into wizard rock, you should look them up. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. <laughs> um, of course, uh, Ron thinks that Hermione is going to be there in, in his back pocket for as a date, <sighs> uh, which is just so typical of Ron. Ugh. Of course she has a date. It's Victor Crumb. Uh, I actually really like the, the, the Yule ball scene in the movie. Yeah, it's quite I, I think, lovely. I think that Emma Watson does a great job playing Hermione in that moment. Es- especially, I think, also at the end when she she and Ron have a fight because Ron's all like, oh, you're fraternizing with the enemy. I'm jealous, but I can't admit it because I'm a man. And she, at least in the movie, like, you know, screams at him and then just falls down on the stairs crying and like pulls off her high heels and as a person who's had to wear high heels i find that deeply relatable yeah. <laughs> at the end of the night emotions are running high you're tired and your feet are hurting the uh harry and ron end up going to the yule ball with the patil twins neville longbottom goes with Ginny. oh isn't that sweet also harry thought he'd have her in his back pocket well he was trying to ask cho the whole time but cedric right. got to her first boo and then he's like hey Ginny, um, you're Oh, you're, with Hermione, Ron Hermione, you're says, a girl. You know, you're a girl. Well spotted. Is that in the <laughs> Again, I'm having trouble uh, linking. I think that's the actually book in the, the movie. book, too. I, I think but, that's in the book, But Emma yeah. Watson delivers it perfectly. Yeah. <laughs> so we, this, of course, this podcast is becoming an Emma Watson fan club. <laughs> I mean, uh, wasn't it let, always? Let's, yeah, let's, at least for let's me. press on. The Yule Ball <laughs> right. happens. Um, there's some stuff with Hagrid and Madame Maxine that's not all that important. Uh, we then get to the second task, and Harry still has hasn't figured out the egg nor has he really asked anybody how for help or even accepted the help that cedric gave him Um, but finally he does he gets in the bath uh with a really kind of sketchy moaning myrtle oh uh, yeah and opens the egg and it it, you know it gives him the clue about the merfolk which he still takes a long time to figure out so they go. They do the second task. He he is noble and rescues more people than he's supposed to. And during this whole time, I haven't even mentioned Mad Eye Moody yet because I'm doing this. <laughs> There's I'm too doing, many other things. I'm doing, doing this. The set uh, <laughs> I'm doing. I'm doing this. Uh, this summary off the top of my head. Um, Mad Eye Moody is the new Defense Against the Dark Arts uh, teacher. Well-known dark wizard catcher. Yes. Or is or, he? Yeah. Um, this is the first book. I think we have the word Auror as well. I think so as well. Uh, we, we've invented some more wizarding language. He is a really good Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, hmm. except maybe a little creepy in that he's using the unforgivable curses in his lessons, which you're not supposed to cast. Which gets you a so, life sentence 
to Azkaban. But he ends up uh, sort of behind the scenes, helping Harry Potter, steering him, guiding him, pushing him along in the Mm. tasks just enough so that Harry survives the task, but not enough for the reader to realize what Moody's doing. Hold on to that for a minute because we move on. Again, it's all set pieces. We move on to the third task. A couple of months have gone by, and I don't remember what happens in that intervening time. Um, except oh, Rita Skeeter's you know. a pain. Oh, Rita Skeeter. Yeah, she's in this too. Her Harry's got. I don't remember. I listened to this book recently, and I don't remember. Um, anyway, we get to the third task. <laughs> a big maze, a, a shrub hedge maze, has grown hedge up maze. on the Quidditch pitch, or it's near the. Is it on the Quidditch pitch? Whatever. It's on the Quidditch pitch. Uh, it's and on Cedric the Quidditch and pitch. Harry are livid. Yeah, they're real mad about that. So they are sent off into the into the Quidditch pitch hedge maze to find uh, the Triwizard Cup. Uh, they they grab the cup at the same time because they want the Hogwarts champions to be champions together. Yeah. And the cup is a port key. By the way, port keys are a thing. There was one in port a boot at the beginning of the book. It's all uh, loaded in the front. If you didn't read any yeah. other books, you won't miss any foreshadowing. But if you read just this one, well, none of it will make sense. But you'll know about port keys and horrors. Right. Yep. It's all right there. Uh, they end up in the graveyard <laughs> in Little Hangleton, right? Yep. Uh, the Harry's and, been dreaming about. Oh, gosh. Has he yeah, been dreaming had, about it yet? Yeah, he's the beginning. About it. Yeah, he's got that connection with, with Voldemort. And Wormtail is there, the servant of Lord Voldemort. And he uh, kills Cedric just Bam. Kill the spare. Kill the spare. Bam. Right off the bat. Ouch. Sorry, Cedric. Mm. Good thing you're a vampire and it's not actually going to... No! <laughs> <laughs> he couldn't be out during the daytime because he'd sparkle. Oh, he'd I guess, sparkle I guess too Scotland. Much. <laughs> Scotland's yeah, very that's it. cloudy. There you go. Right? It is cloudy. They see, it's mm. all coming together. Um, <laughs> anyway, they, they bring back Lord Voldemort using Harry's blood and then and they're going to fight... Hand. And ugh, yes, Wormtail cuts his hand off. They're gonna fight, and but it's the twin cores and the wands, and they they shoot them at each other, and this Bam. crazy thing happens. Priori incantatum, which we never and, really exactly figure out, and it doesn't really ever happen again. And even and it's important to forget about it because that so many other problems would have been solved if they had just cast priori, priori incantatum on other people's wands. Um, what? Yeah, think about like it. Like seriouses. Yeah. Dang. <laughs> yeah. So then, um, <laughs> but Harry gets to see uh, apparitions of his parents mm-hmm. and Cedric, and they help him escape from Voldemort. He ends up. He grabs the port key again, and somehow it's a return trip port key. It, that. Mm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. Mm-hmm. Again, let's mm-hmm. let it go. Let it go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he gets back, and Mad Eye Moody is there, and he comforts him, and he brings him back to his office. But what? It's not what? actually Mad Eye Moody. Oh my it's gosh! Doctor Who. Oh my gosh! With <laughs> <laughs> and that flask he's been drinking the whole time, which, as Harry says in the movie, I don't think it's pumpkin juice. No, Harry, it's not. It is not pumpkin juice. It's polyjuice it's potion. Polyjuice potion. Anyway, Doctor Who, also known as Barty Crouch Jr., who is another one of Voldemort's <laughs> Death Eaters, is actually Mad Eye Moody, and Mad Eye Moody is in the trunk, and Ooh. everything is going wrong until he forgets to look in his faux glass, and all of the teachers burst into the room and stun him and give him.
him Verita Serum, and they learn all of the truth that he was sent to in this convoluted plot to get Harry to the end of the Triwizard Tournament so that he could go to the graveyard. I don't know why it couldn't have happened earlier in the year, but that's okay. He could have just handed him like a want, like a, a piece of parchment yeah, during their yeah. during their lessons, and bam, think, he's gone. I think we should probably just again hand wave that stuff okay. away. Would you call this scene? <laughs> A Death Eater download? What? Ooh. Like a Dumbledore download, no, no, except I it's with it. a Death Eater. I, I, okay, I'm there. yeah, we got that. You. But Death Eater download. Yeah, I think it's he downloads forced, the whole plot. It's a forced Death Eater download, and everything is good again, except Voldemort is back, and uh, but nobody believes anybody except for the people at the school. And good news then, though for Harry, with the death of Cedric. Cho is now single. See our next episode on the That's fifth it. book. There it is. And that is Harry Potter in the Goblet of Fire. I think I took way too long doing that plot of that book. <laughs> okay. but Hopefully, oh, I don't know. I'm going to make the sound of this book fl flipping the pages into my microphone. <laughs> it's a long 700 and something, 734 pages. And okay, so even if it only took me 10 minutes to go through the whole plot. It's, That's it's not too bad. All right. Lay it on me, Carrie. What are we going to talk about? Wow. Um, hmm, there's a lot. There's a lot here, especially after Prisoner of Azkaban, which was kind of like a normal length, like young adult or, or late child book. This is like where they changed it. And it noticeably does get darker. The film gets darker. I know there's people who have taken like every frame of all the movies and cut them down to one second. No, every second of the movie and made them one pixel wide and squished them together so you can see the color palettes. And the first two are, are bright and golden, and it's uh, Christopher Columbus directing it. Third one gets a little darker because Alfonso Caron is, you know, a very different director. And then you get the fourth one where things start to get very dark. You have these uh, dream sequences where Harry is, again, fearing for his life, feeling like something, some kind of evil is growing. His scar starts to hurt again. That's what starts off his section of the book is he writes to Sirius saying, hey, my scar hurts. And then it happens again throughout the course of the book. His scar is tingling. Leads people to think he's kind of off his rocker because somehow Rita Skeeter finds out about it. And overall, you get this sense of like impending doom. And I don't know about you, but when I read this book the first time and every time since, which is a lot, I get to the point where Voldemort, little gross baby Voldemort is in the cauldron with the bone of the father and the blood of the servant or blood of the enemy and the flesh of the servant. And Harry's praying like, please have let it drown, drown, please have let it drown, please let it drown. And of course, every time I read it, Voldemort comes up from the cauldron, is clothed in a robe and steps out and receives his wand from Wormtail and then wreaks havoc on the world for the next three years. And I think in this book, you start to see the lines being drawn in a way that is a lot more clear the more you move on with the book. So you see at the end, it literally has Draco Malfoy saying like, you'll be next. I mean, he's he's postured before, but this is when, when you see that his father was one of the circle around Voldemort welcoming him back. You realize how deep it goes, that he's a part of a family that is a Death Eater family, and he will be on the other side. And actually, one of the second to last chapters called The Parting of Ways, because um, you have this division with the Death Eaters, but then you also have the division with the government. Fudge refuses to admit that Voldemort is back. He's like, I, he can't be back. And Dumbledore says, well, then we've reached a parting of ways. 
you will go one way and I'll go another. And of course, Dumbledore's way is the way of truth and light and honesty. And even if it's painful, not to numb it, not to numb the pain that is coming. Whereas Fudge's way is obfuscation and propaganda just to make his job easier and working out of denial. So I think the general theme I saw in this book was just this kind of claustrophobic doom coming in and then almost appreciating the clarity that comes after the reveal of Voldemort. At least the, the, the lines have been drawn. And from this point on, you kind of know what has to happen. You get the sense that, you know, eventually we don't know it yet, but Harry will have to kill Voldemort, or at least he'll want to confront him. And you'll, and you see who's the, you know, who are the bad guys? Who are the good guys? And of course, there's a lot of people in between, which we'll explore next episode. But in the meantime, the evil is clear. This is a creature that murders indiscriminately, that is surrounded by powerful and influential figures who will come at a moment's notice. Um, all of their old old habits are kind of coming back to roost and everyone's past is coming present again. Um, all the Death Eaters are either are being summoned and either escaping and running or ignoring the summons like the case of, of Snape. And it just gets a lot darker from here on out. So what you just said made me think of the fact that the books are centered around the kids, none of whom were alive for Voldemort's first reign of terror. Or maybe they were babies, like Fred yeah. and George would have been alive, but they wouldn't, they weren't, you know, really sentient right. at that point or, or conscious of what the, of the world around them. Uh, and, and I wonder when we think about that the end of this book with the denial that you talk about with fudge it makes me think very much about climate change about hmm. you know um the, the big things that are destroying the world mm -hmm. and how easy it is for us to just push them away and say well we don't have to deal with those that'll be somebody else's problem mm -hmm. and in this case fudge is denying the evidence that's right there before his eyes. I mean, Dumbledore is a trustworthy source of information. You know, it's not just Harry. Dumbledore believes him. This should be enough. You know, this yeah. is the, the chief warlock of the whatever, right? Chief Mugwump. Mugwump of the, the wizard gamut. gamut, whatever, whatever Dumbledore is. He's an influential, trustworthy mm -hmm. figure. And yet, as you said, Fudge takes the easy road as opposed to the right road. You know, Absolutely. the easy road of denial and um, and and wanting to believe something that isn't true. I hate to draw too close of a parallel, but this reminded me a lot of COVID, early days of COVID, mm. when there was so much denial in the air of like, it'll be over by Easter. And I, I like, you know, I wonder a lot, like, what would it have been like if we just, you know, face this thing head on from the beginning. We had other countries doing that, showing us the way the East Coast, heck, you know, we got hit first and we kind of, I think the experience of like New York City showed the rest of the country, this is a big deal. It can happen to you. Um, and yet when it hit Texas and the middle Midwest, it it went through the roof because of this denial and because of this, I'd rather just pretend it's not happening because it's inconvenient, it's problem. Mm -hmm. 
than to commit the resources. Um, so I see that definitely with climate change and, and also with COVID and probably mm-hmm. a, a lot of example. other problems that are yeah. inconvenient to face head on. Yeah. And, and so we then have the kids though, the, the main characters of the book who didn't have that earlier experience, knowing the siege of, you know, the, the sort of that reign of terror of mm-hmm. Voldemort and they are on board with Dumbledore in the next book, they will even call themselves Dumbledore's army. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder what about the the younger people allows them to embrace the 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 right decision. Is it the fact that they don't know how bad it could get? Is it the fact that they have more imagination uh, to see the future, see a future that they want, and are 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 more willing to go get it? Hmm. I wonder about that because it's it's mostly just fudge in his ilk, the ministry that deny the existence of Voldemort's return. All the Death Eater kids are all over this. So I feel like in some ways the battle lines are just being redrawn a generation later. Mm, okay. You've got the Malfoys on one side, you got the Potters on the other. Mm-hmm. You got the Weasleys now joining them, the Weasleys who were absent from fighting the first time. I think they were too busy having like eight children, so they weren't they weren't involved. But it's it's the government, and I think it's Fudge, notably, who is the the chief denier. Mm-hmm. I don't know if, um, and I think it is because of, he's always been a politician, and he's always had that fear that he's not good enough. That Dumbledore would have made a better minister, which makes him so suspicious of Dumbledore's motives. Mm-hmm. And then when he gets replaced with Scrimger, when it's abundantly clear at the end of book five that like, yeah, he's back because he's in the ministry murdering people. When you get Scrimger, you're able to see what the government response could look like if they were on board and not full of denial. So I don't know what what the minister was like in Voldemort's first reign of power if they you know, probably there was a lot of cozying up to those in power on the Death Eaters too. Um, mm-hmm. So I wonder about that. Hmm. But is it, but definitely Harry's generation, I mean, Hogwarts in general shows a level of bravery and being unafraid to take a side that I do, I don't know if that would have been as clear in the first go around. Mm-hmm. Well, like at that point, they, have they the didn't bo- really, yeah. they wouldn't have known what was really coming. Uh, mm-hmm. They didn't, you know, I assume that Voldemort slowly built that power base, mm. you know, uh, you know that, that fascism creeps in mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden is there and you go, wait, where did that come from? Wasn't that that nice old boy? Tom, you know, Tom Riddle? Tom Riddle, yeah. Not some psychopath <laughs> from, yeah. Um, all right. So what else do we want to talk about? Uh, yeah, one of the things that, that strikes me about Harry Potter number four is it shows Harry's predilection to go it alone. Mm. He has that streak throughout the series. And the fact that he has two best friends sometimes seems like an impediment in his mind and is, is sometimes like a grudging thing that he needs to uh, acquiesce to. But Harry is always trying to do things by himself. You are so right. So the first time you mentioned this, like trusting thing, I was like, well, he's not supposed to, the rules say he has to figure all this out on his own, but he's doing that. You're right. In the rest of his life to the point where it becomes a joke at the end of six or something, when he's like, I've got to go find Voldemort and fight him. And Hermione and Ron are like, uh, yeah, and we're coming too. And he's like, no, you can't. Don't, don't even. And they're like, don't even bother. 
trying to, mm-hmm. we know we've been with you since first year when we right. went after, you know, fluffy with you. So I think it happens uh, in five when they're going to go to the ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he maybe in seven, seven as well. Right. He's, he's, he's always, he's just going to go off and do it by himself. And we get right at the beginning of the book. He's, he says, oh, who am I going to tell about my scar hurting? Oh, if I just, if I tell Dumbledore, I mean, what would I say? My scar hurt. Oh, that sounds so stupid. <laughs> um, oh, but I'll write to Sirius because Sirius is like mm-hmm. a kindred spirit. Sirius is, you know, he, he and I are so similar. I, I really, I can look up to, to Sirius. Um, and, and so we get a glimmer of him maybe trusting somebody there. And of course that gets snatched away later on. Whoops. Um, but then, you know, once we get into the tasks, mm-hmm. he, you know, grudgingly goes to uh, see what Hagrid wants to show him, which is the dragons. And he, he assumes it's some, some bizarre scheme of Hagrid's like so many other things. He doesn't trust that actually this is really good information that Hagrid has a reason to know. Um, he just kind of is like, oh, is he trying to show me Madame Maxime? I could see her anytime. It's kind yeah, of inappropriate. He, again, he's very, Harry is, we're into the years where Harry boy. Is, is, yeah, definitely a 14, 15-year-old boy. After the first task, he's got the egg, and we have the same issue where um, Cedric tries to give him some help because he had mm-hmm. helped Cedric, he had helped Cedric about the dragons. He had given him the tip. Yep. Um, of just to, Cedric, it's dragons. it's dragons. The first task is dragons. <laughs> it's dragons. Um, and then, uh, so then he, but he doesn't take Cedric's advice about taking a bath because he thinks that he's, you know, making fun of him. Yeah, he's going to get set up. Like what, take a bath? Take a bath, what the heck does that mean? In the, um, in the prefix, really awesome bathroom. And then he also doesn't um, ask other people for help Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the, the, the scene where, where, uh, we know that Mad-Eye Moody has given Neville Longbottom the, um, is it the plants of the Mediterranean or something magical so, yeah. plants of the Mediterranean, um, which has gillyweed in it. Neville knows everything about plants. That's his jam. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, but even once Harry understands that something is going to happen under the lake and he might need to be able to breathe underwater. <laughs> And he, he can't he, cast Alter Self. Right. Well, that's a D&D spell for those of you who don't yeah. play D&D. Oh, sorry. Uh, that's pretty, okay. Pretty great spell. Or water uh, water breathing. Um, yeah, water breathing. Uh, he doesn't ask Neville for help. You know, at this point, Neville is still this supporting player who is there for the main characters to kind of rag on. He doesn't look like the leading man yet, like he will in book seven. Boy, will he ever. Uh, that's inappropriate. <laughs> Cut that. <laughs> <laughs> he has um, a glow up okay yeah <laughs> still love uh, his sweater vests anyway so he harry doesn't have the the ask for help gene you know he he that is something he needs to learn and every single book he needs mm-hmm. to learn it and he never really learns it it's like, I think in seven, he starts, like, he really does rely on mostly Hermione, the team, to, to figure this out. But you're right. It's part of his hero mentality of not only do I have to go it alone because it's too dangerous for anyone else, but I have to then, if these people are along with me, I have to spend energy and thought protecting them. That's like even harder. So like, 
jumping ahead to book five when they go to the ministry. Okay, Ron and Hermione are coming fine. Oh, but Ginny and Neville and Luna want to come. And then I have to protect all of those people. And it's almost like any person that gets injured alongside him, it's his personal fault. It's his responsibility somehow because he has this hero mentality. And part of that is because it's his, it's, you know, the books are named after him, but it's also the character. Uh, He takes on the weight of the world and is unwilling to share it with other people. I think that the reader learns the lesson that bringing, trusting other people and, and sharing loads is really important because we see the the heroism of the other characters, but it's something that Harry has to kind of learn over and over again. And in this book specifically, you know, he just gets stripped down to his own, you know, just to being him himself in a graveyard, mm-hmm. right? Remember, kill the spare. You know, Cedric, who is way better at magic than Harry, <laughs> is gone in an instant, and he's alone in the graveyard. And he gets his butt kicked. Mm-hmm. You know, the only way he gets out is because of a Deus Ex Machina <laughs> that 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 allows him to grab onto something to transport him out of there. Mm-hmm. But he wasn't gonna win. Like if no. he actually fought them, he wasn't gonna win. He was he was Voldemort's plaything. He was you know spoon, spinning it out to make a point to la- to get his followers to laugh to show how important he was. He was using Harry so much literally bending his spine over like a puppet. Uh, mm-hmm. You're right. He mm-hmm. would not have won. And that I think also sets up the reader to be afraid for him for the next three books, because you know how poorly this first encounter went. Mm-hmm. He escapes mm-hmm. by the skin of his teeth and yeah, like a, a weird port key return to sender rule, which doesn't exist. Then the next couple of books are him struggling with the need to ask people for help. And on one side of the coin and the other side of the coin is not wanting to put people in danger. It gets kind of exhausting. Like at the end of five, at the end of six, at the end, even in the middle of seven, he's trying to, he's spending all this energy saying like, don't follow me. It's too dangerous. And yet his people, his friends, especially have proven themselves to be equal to the task and that he needs them. And that, you know, you won't defeat Voldemort on your own. He might have brains and guts that are, you know, a better sense of danger than other people, a better instinct than most people. And that's constantly proven, but he needs the help of other people. And I know as, as a reader, I'm kind of screaming at him to mm-hmm. just ask for help yep. over and over again. Ask for help, Harry. There are people who love you, who, who are ready to be, to be there, to be allies of your, of you. And I think you hit upon a key point in this when you said allies, because as we move in the books, the parallels between Harry and Voldemort get drawn much stronger to the point where they, he starts to really identify some parts of himself in Voldemort. And some of that's, you know, coincidental because, or accidental because of the magical transfer. And that's why he can speak partial tongue, but so much of their backgrounds are alike as Tom Riddle in book two will point out, you know, they even look alike, but they're both orphan boys born to a non, well, he says muggle parent, but you know what I mean. Um, and and Tom Riddle and then later Voldemort does not trust anyone to be in his inner circle. He has minions, certainly, but he doesn't have friends. It, they're not even allies. Yeah, it does not. It's not a mutual environment. And so Harry's real strength is his friendship and the, and the equality of that, the, the back and forth, the mutuality of his relationships is what defines him as, you know, as a Gryffindor and as a person and as a hero. 
whereas Voldemort will always be alone, entirely mm. alone with his snake for company. And I wonder if, if when you talk about Gryffindors, I think that's the tension for Gryffindor, though, is mm. the desire to be in relationship with other people versus the need to be the hero, to be mm-hmm. the hero of the story. That's a good uh, point. And, and I think that what the Gryffindor learns is you can be the hero of the story and the, the, uh, the hero of your own story while at the same time you are a supporting character in other people's stories. Mm. And it's okay to be both. Especially if they write awesome fan fictions about you. (laughs) (laughs) It wouldn't be a Harry Potter without me referencing that. All right. So that's definitely a lesson that Harry learns throughout the course of the books that we as readers learn. What else do we learn from book four specifically? I I hesitate to talk about house elves now because I know we want to do a whole episode on this, but do we want to just touch it? Or I mean, do we want to do we want to say that we're going to talk about house elves in we're a future talk episode? We're going to talk about house elves merit their own conversation and then some merely the existence of them in the world, but then how they're deployed and how they're portrayed in the world itself. So yep. stay tuned for that. Don't think that we're ignoring that whole thing. <laughs> yes, like the movie did. We also, so I notice a theme in this book of a lot of prejudice, both around racial traits or heritage, I guess, given what we learned about werewolves in book three. And then we learned this big reveal about the giantism, but then also prejudice around foreigners. There's a lot of, because there's suddenly the existence, again, we learn there's other, other magical schools. Granted, our protagonist is 14 and doesn't often think beyond the end of his own nose. But we learn about the existence of other magical schools, other cultures of, of magic, other, you know, other countries that have magic and what they look like. And there's a little bit of excite. I think there's definitely excitement and curiosity on Harry's part. But from the older generation, there's a lot of prejudice. And some of that's merited. So there's a lot of prejudice around Karkaroff, especially from Mad-Eye Moody. So this is the head of the Durmstrang school. And it turns out that's merited because he was a Death Eater. But there's also this suspicion around, um, you know, that Ron gets around Victor Crumb, born out of jealousy for Hermione, but he's, you know, he wants to call him the enemy. And suddenly the Triwizard Tournament goes from, you know, an exercise in international magical cooperation into a like cutthroat competition. Um, and I just, I see that kind of emerging as Dumbledore says in his closing speech, like our hab- was it habits of language are nothing if the purposes of our hearts are united or something like that. Um, Basically, you know, you all are different from these students. You're not Hogwarts students and yet you're welcome here. So Dumbledore is creating a place of radical hospitality, of anti-prejudice, a place where all are welcome. Werewolves, half giants, house elves who are freed, house elves who are still enslaved, all of them are welcome. People from far away and people from near are welcome at Hogwarts. And he's going to try to create a place where he knows that we need to band together in order to fight this great evil that's growing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and remember that when we get to book five, because when we talk about what happens in Hogwarts in book five, it's basically the antithesis of what you just said. Oh boy, yeah. Not, not looking forward to rereading that one. <laughs> you made a point 
uh, earlier about Harry looking looking past his nose. One of the challenges with the Harry Potter books is that they are written with a very specific, limited third person perspective. Yeah. Everything beyond just the, the like the opening chapters of a couple of books mm-hmm. um, comes from Harry's perspective, including all of the Voldemort stuff, which tends mm-hmm. to be kind of dreams in Harry's mind. Or, vi- right. or remember memories of another person, yeah. Yeah, or they're or they're actually looking at a memory in the pensive in the next book. The fact that we are only in Harry's mind, we the the later books grow what Harry's perspective is, and that happens too. You know, as we get older, our perspective grows, and the question then becomes: How do we respond to a shift in worldview? Hmm. Are we going to um, see a larger perspective as a threat, uh, something that we want to shrink away from and say, no, no, I need to stay in my bubble where I understand everything and everything makes sense. Or do we see that wider perspective and say, wow, this is really interesting and I can't wait to learn more about that thing. It's the difference between a posture of curiosity and a posture of fear. And curiosity is a wonderful antidote for fear. When we're upset about something, oftentimes it's because we don't understand that thing and or we're afraid of that. And then we get afraid of it because we don't understand it. And so one of the great antidotes of fear is curiosity. And living with that posture, you know, that is our primary attitude is to be curious about things that we don't understand is a wonderful way to expand that worldview. And the Harry Potter books keep growing and growing as the characters get older and we see more and more of the world. Um, and the question is, are we going to be afraid of that or are we going to be curious about it? I think we'll definitely need to touch on that in the next book with Umbridge, who is primarily motivated out of fear. But in the meantime, the difference between curiosity, I'm thinking of the antidote of Umbridge is Mr. Weasley. His almost childlike curiosity and wonder at the workings of the muggle world is adorable and somewhat somewhat problematic given that he works with them and doesn't understand how telephones work. But um, we see this at the World Cup. The wizards who um, are embracing the muggle way, the muggle world, and those who are just kind of saying, not, not that they're afraid of the muggle world. I think they're afraid of feeling incompetent. So there is fear there who just decide to be wizards doing wizard stuff instead of trying to go incognito, as they say. So you've got the wizards who are doing their best, like Archie in his night- nightgown. He's like, I bought this in a muggle shop. Muggles yeah. wear them. Um, <laughs> not, no, muggle women wear nightgowns, Archie. At night. <laughs> uh, not the men, they wear these, um, you know, shorts and pants. But he's trying, okay? He's trying his best and doing yeah. it kind of poorly. Whereas you have some of the wizards who are like, ugh, making a fire by hand is too hard. I would feel stupid and bad. I'll just use my wand and make the sparks 20 feet in the air in purple. Or have a, a three three-tiered, what, three-story silk palace with peacocks outside. There's, <laughs> there's not an attempt to be curious about what it might be like to be a muggle. Um, instead, there's just like, nope, this is this is our space. And it almost like a kind of colonizer mentality of like, I'm going to bring my ways to wherever I go because they are superior and you are all, you know, stupid. Yeah. As you say, at the World Cup, we have some wizards who are trying to adapt to muggle ways in order to be incognito. Other ones who are flaunting it because it's just not convenient mm-hmm. that we've talked about convenience a couple of times want to now show off yeah and then we have a whole nother group which is the death eaters who come mm. in and they have absolutely no 
qualms about showing their power to the degree of casting the dark mark into the sky. Mm-hmm. And they're announcing that we are back. When we read the Quidditch World Cup and we see the Death Eaters striding onto the stage there, it so reminds me of fascist neo-Nazis mm-hmm. in our own world just in the last couple of years here in the United States being emboldened by by rhetoric to mm-hmm. show themselves and to be to be present and to say um, our way is the only right way because we think we deserve the power mm. because of some set of of characteristics that have been deemed to be dominant and we will use that right to to exert our will over everyone else's who kind of comes in the way mm-hmm and yeah, so the Death Eaters really are the fascists of the Wizarding World. We'll get more into that in, in later books. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to discussing prejudice, you know, we, that goes back to book two, where we learn about purebloods and mudbloods mm-hmm. and uh, which is the Wizarding World's um, analog for that's that's their primary caste system, mm-hmm. if you will, in the Wizarding World is you know purebloods, mudbloods, mm-hmm. and then way down below is Muggles with squibs, and, right? Maybe yeah. maybe just, slightly above, just above the Muggles. So when we get to Book Four and we have the Death Eaters starting to be a little bit more active, um, and even more active behind the scenes, mm-hmm. and we recognize that those Death Eaters have always been in places of power. And we're just waiting and biding their time mm-hmm. until they could come back again, which again is what's happened in the real world when we see the rise of fascism in the 1930s and then it is defeated. And, but it's always still there that that undercurrent is there and it rises up again and again. And, and right now we're in a moment where it's at a high, a high tide. When we see in the case, oh, this will be more prevalent in later books, but you have the characters who were very overt and unapologetic about their perspectives, like the Lestranges, who are in Azkaban. They're taken out of their positions of power and you know incarcerated. But then you have someone like Lucius Malfoy, who the moment it's not convenient or safe, he will abandon it and and spin a bunch of lies and probably you know gild a bunch of palms and. Be, remain in a position of power and wealth. And you're right. He's just simmering under the surface. We have kind of thought he's a bad guy up until this point. He's not very kind to his house elf. Um, and then in book four, you see him at the side of Voldemort saying, you know, I had, you know, I, I came to your side the moment you called, I've been waiting for you. I've just been waiting for you to summon me. Um, and that is scary to think that they've kind of always been there like sleeper cells almost. And later it'll get even more confusing when they start to use the imperious curse on various members of, of, of the government and the ruling party is um, it's, it becomes a terrifying environment of not knowing who to trust, which then undermines the curiosity that maybe people feel at the, at otherness and definitely the sense of working together against a common evil. It's hard to do that if you can't trust the person next to you. Why don't we finish up our conversation about Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire by circling back to Dumbledore's quotation that we said at the beginning. If the time should come when you have to make a choice between what is right and what is easy, remember what happened to a boy who was good and kind and brave because he strayed across the path of Lord Voldemort. Remember Cedric Diggory. We assume that Dumbledore means 
if you have to make a choice between what is right and what is easy, choose what is right. Do the right thing. Yeah. Do, do the right thing. Yeah. Um, be like be, Cedric. Be like Cedric, uh, who tragically was was in the wrong place at the wrong time, but was a was a person of integrity and strength and courage. Um, and there will be this. This is a um, a fraught situation. This is a very dangerous time and you might be tempted to choose what is easy and therefore put your head down and just go along with whatever is going to happen. And yeah, you might survive for a little while or you can choose to do what is right and risk your life, risk your risk, everything. But note that you're doing that, that in so doing, you might be actually uh, standing against that evil tide that is coming. And we see this with the life of faith, certainly, that following Jesus, walking in his footsteps is not always easy. In fact, it's rather inconvenient a lot of the time, particularly when the culture around you is telling you, don't don't worry about that. Don't think about that. Just enjoy the short term. Just enjoy, you know, immediate pleasure. Just enjoy, you know, all of those things that ultimately harm us and harm the world and harm creation. Um, but are are so easy to fall into. And the, the way of faith and the way of love, I think, is to gently hand in hand stand against that and remember that we, you know, we are gifted by the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, as they say, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the things we need in order to do what is right, in order to spread the love of, the, of God and to bring you know, bring God's mission of reconciliation between God and us and us and each other and us of all of creation to fruition. Thank you for listening to this episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. We'll be back for two more uh, episodes in this in-between season, season three and three quarters, uh, very soon as we talk about Harry Potter's five and six. Uh, in the meantime, you can find us at nerdychristians.com or on social media, facebook.com slash nerdychristians, and on Twitter at nerdychristians. You can find me on Twitter at Rev Adam Thomas or on my website, adamthomas.net. I invite you to check out Seven of Shadow, the final volume of my fantasy series, The Shields of Suleril on Amazon. And you can always find both Carrie and me right here on the next episode of the podcast for Nerdy Christians. And now, beloved ones, the evil one's gift for spreading discord and enmity is very great. We can fight it only by showing an equally strong bond of friendship and trust. Differences of habit and language are nothing at all if our aims are identical and our hearts are open. We are facing dark and difficult times, and I pray that when the time comes between making a choice between what is right and what is easy, we remember those who came before us who were good and kind and brave and have the courage to follow in their path. United in the love of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.